Softly Spoken is an introvert's guide to thinking out loud about identity, meaning, and the moments that make us who we are. In our different ways, we all reach points in our life where we have to let go of who we were in order to embrace who we are and who we're becoming. A mix of stories and interviews, Softly Spoken is a podcast that takes a deep dive into the hidden moments that shape us. It's an invitation for you to consider the version of you you are creating right now. What are you learning about yourself in the process? My name is Stefan, and I'm your host and introvert-in-chief. Lynn is a retired math professor, an artist, a landlady. She lives in Nanaimo, BC. Those are just some of her identities, but I'd like to pass it over to Lynn to introduce herself. Hello, I'm Lynn, and I'm, I guess, all of those things that Stefan has said, and probably a few other things as well. I moved to Nanaimo about five and a half years ago when I retired from teaching mathematics. And at that time, I took up art amongst a lot of other things. Yeah, and I really want to get into that because it's been back when I was still living with you as one of your <laughs> renters, you were you were pretty active in developing your art. And it seems to have always been there as, a, as an important part of, of your identity, I would say. So I'd like to ask some questions around how that's informed who you are and how you see yourself and, and how it's helped you in your life. If you had to, to pick three words to describe yourself, what would those three words be? I don't know. There are many times I'm not very self-aware. I can't see myself from the outside and make judgments. And I'm thinking, trying to describe myself is having to look at myself from the outside that way. And I, I, I just don't know what to say. Okay. Well, let me ask it in a different way. If you were to ask your best friend how they would describe you, what would they say? Creative, lots of energy, and always busy with some new project. I would agree with that. <laughs> That's how I remember you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, I mean, just to get a bit of a storyline of, of your life, if you could just share briefly where you grew up and what that was like. I was born not far from where I'm living now. I was born in Duncan on Vancouver Island. We moved quite a bit. At the time I started grade four, I had changed schools nine times in three provinces. My growing up was somewhat chaotic. My father was dysfunctional and abusive. And I think today he probably would have been diagnosed as bipolar and probably suffering from PTSD. We then actually stayed in one place for three years in Ontario, moved back to Vancouver Island, at which point my parents split up and we went to live with my mom, my sister, and I went to live with my grandmother, which made life much simpler because my father was not around. Thinking about your childhood, and it sounds like it was, like you said, chaotic and not, not a very happy time. What got you through that? My mother. My mother was, she was unable to stand up to my father, but my sister and I knew completely that she loved us unconditionally and she was there for us. Also, when you're in the abusive and dysfunctional family as a child, you don't know that this is not the way everybody else is. So you just go on with it that way. Would you say that even back then you had a sense that something was wrong? 
Oh, I knew from my very first memories are memories of realizing that my father hated me and would rather I was dead. And when you're four years old and you actually feel that, it's a little upsetting. No kidding. It leaves you with a constant feeling of threat. How would you say that has shaped your, your sense of yourself? I mean, does it still shape you today? In some ways it does, because I like to be independent and be able to take care of myself and not have to depend on anybody. This may sound like a good thing in some ways, but it's not terribly good in relationships when you find it hard to trust or to depend on somebody else. Right. And on the other hand, it's made me um, able to renovate my house and uh, do all kinds of other things that I would not have done if I did not feel that I had to take care of myself. As a child navigating that, did you have a dream of what your life might look like? No, not till I was in high school. Before that, I definitely did not. It was getting through each day and each week. I did not see a future. I did not do well in school, in elementary school. I had a hard time learning to read. I think all the movements between schools didn't help that. By the time I was in high school and we were living with my grandmother, things were much more stable. And I had decided I wanted to be a nuclear physicist. Why that? Why that? That was a time when I was first hearing about the Big Bang Theory and that kind of things in physics. And it just really hit my imagination, I guess. I just wanted to find out more about it. And so for my, I think I was in grade eight, and my aunt was totally astounded when what I wanted for Christmas was a book on Einstein's theory of relativity. How old are you? About 13. <laughs> not not your typical 13-year-old uh, gift. No, at that point, we were living on Vancouver Island in a small logging town. It's not a great place to grow up as a kid who wants to be a nuclear physicist or anything of that kind. Trying to get books to read in a small logging town can be difficult, but we would go periodically to Victoria, and I had my favorite bookstore there. Uh, you mentioned how much you moved around, and that's something I think we both have in common with each other. I've moved around quite a bit myself. At least for me, I, I think it has shaped me in some pretty key ways. There is a sense of rootlessness that comes with that, and a sense of a lack of sense of home, maybe. <laughs> at least for me, it took me a long time to really feel like I was at home in a place. Was that something that you also experienced at all, or, or did you always kind of know where home was for you? Um, no, home was wherever I was at any particular time. So did I have a sense of having put down roots in a place and a community? I think the first time I really felt that way was when I was living in Vancouver. I loved the community there, you know, and I started renting and found a whole community of people that I knew. And I started to feel more like home there. When I moved to Nanaimo, I was a little worried about that, but Nanaimo feels like home now. What do you consider the key ingredients of home? Hmm. I think what I consider it has changed over my lifetime. What I consider home now is I can go for a walk down the street here and talk to people. 
People will say hello, people I have met. Sometimes I don't know their names. Sometimes I do. I know a lot of people here in Nanaimo at this point, but I made a concerted effort to do that. That didn't just happen automatically. Right. But like you said, it's not something that just happened. It was something that you, you've you really consciously built intentionally. Yes. When I moved here, I moved here because I fell in love with this house, which is an old heritage home. And I quit my job and came here knowing I knew nobody. And I knew that I would have to make a conscious effort. And so when I arrived, I found a store downtown called Literacy Central Vancouver Island, and they were looking for tutors. And I volunteered to tutor math and literacy with them. And I went to tutor training and met some people in that. And that was just at the time that Canada was bringing in many, many Syrian refugees. And I contacted the settlement agency here in Nanaimo and said, I have this big house. Do you need short-term housing for refugees? And they said, we'll let you know. And the sponsorship phoned me and said, we have a family, mom, dad, and three kids coming, and we haven't found them an apartment yet. Can you give them a place to stay? No, the first family had only two kids. And I said, sure. And so this Syrian family that spoke only Arabic, no English, I speak not a word of Arabic, arrived at 11 o'clock at night after 28 hours of flights. And fortunately, one member of their sponsorship group did speak both Arabic and English and introduced us and got us started. Then I had a second family. They stayed for a couple of weeks until they had a home. Then another family, also Syrian with three kids this time, came and stayed with me. And then two men from Eritrea came and stayed wow. with me. And one of those men, I later worked in a sponsorship group and brought his wife and four children here. There's now hmm. five children. And I've adopted that family. Hmm. I'm working now on my third sponsorship group for refugees. It's almost like even though you didn't really have much of a home life growing up, you've gotten into the business of creating home for others. <laughs> thought of it that way. And I guess that's true. And renting rooms to students, it's the same thing. I'd like to make them feel like it's home, not you have a room here and stay in your room, but that yeah. it's home. I do want to talk about your mathematics career because that I think is, is quite interesting. So you mentioned that nuclear physics was your first inspiration. How did you go from that to becoming, as you did later in life, a professor of mathematics? But there's a lot in between. I was about to leave home at the end of grade 11 because, well, living in a small logging town was not much fun. And my mother and the school counselor didn't think that was a good idea. And they applied for me for admission to Simon Fraser University, who had an early admission program. So I started university at age 16, but I had no idea what I was doing there. So I finished one semester, quit. Oh, you quit because you didn't like it or you quit because it was too hard? I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I did well enough in my classes, but I didn't have a goal. I didn't feel comfortable. I come from a working class family and I the university was a very foreign environment to me. Mm. And so I quit. And um, for the next few years, I, well, I lived in the United States for a while, not exactly legally. And I got a lot in, into using drugs and I was... I hitchhiked across Canada and back and panhandled on the streets in Toronto. And that sounds like that was a period of feeling pretty lost or not having a direction, really. 
Yeah, I was being very self-destructive at the, at the time, especially with the use of drugs and, and so on. But at one point, it clicked in that I was going to end up dead or in jail if I didn't do something. And I came back home. And I fortunately had a mother who welcomed me back home despite everything I had done. And that made a big difference. Were you worried that she would reject you? No, I was not worried, but I had friends who had not been able to go home because their parents didn't want them around anymore. They had not fulfilled their parents' expectations, shall we say. But I had no doubt that my mother would be accepting. So what did I do then? After that, oh, I moved to Calgary with the intention to go to the Alberta College of Art. I had applied and been accepted to the Alberta College of Art, moved there with friends who went with me, and my sister and her then husband and another couple and another person and a little girl. The couple had a little girl. We moved there, but they sent a letter saying they had accepted twice as many students as they would take and they would be weeding people out by Christmas time. So they accepted people. They said, you have been accepted. You're in. And then they said, oops, we made a mistake. No, we planned this on purpose and we're going to get rid of you. So you better perform in this next time between now and Christmas or we'll get rid of you. And I was not very happy with that. So I did not go and I got a job in Calgary and stayed there. So at that point, you were like, what was your dream? Was it to become an artist? Did you have a dream at that point? I sort of had a dream. I wanted to become an artist, yes, and that was my dream. But I I did not have the confidence to go ahead with that under that kind of pressure. So in terms of the the art that you were producing back then, was it mostly drawings? Was it painting? What, What kind of art were you doing? It was drawing. I'd had no training at all. I was just doing drawings. I had to present a portfolio, and I had done that, and they seemed to think my drawings were all right, but I was not confident. At all. Okay. So you got a job, you were still not sure, you know, how to make your dream come true. So yeah, where did where did you go from there? I got met a man there and got married. He was a police officer in Calgary. And then he hated being a police officer. He had just joined at the time I met him and he hated it. So he quit and we left, made a short trip a month living in Edmonton and then moved to Vancouver and got another job. And so I worked for a while and I went to trade school. Oh, I had gone occasionally back to college, taken a few courses here and there in different things, anthropology, sociology, English, and so on. But I went to trade school. How old were you at this point? When I went to trade school, I would have been 28 or 29, 28 probably by then. And to study power engineering, I was refused admission to it, despite the fact I qualified based simply on the fact I was a woman. This made me extremely angry. And so I went to the head of the program and they said, that's not going to be a problem. We've never had a woman, but, you know, you have the qualification. I went to the inspector's office in Victoria who certified power engineers and they said, oh, no. And they both wrote letters back to the Councillor at Employment Canada, who, when I went to see him, was not happy with me, but had no choice but to put me in the program. And so I completed the program at the top of my class. I really enjoyed it. I had a great time. Then I did have trouble finding a job because people weren't quite ready for employing a woman. 
How did your classmates treat you? It varied. There was three guys that were a little older who I became good friends with. And then there was a bunch of younger guys who couldn't see what a woman was doing there. But I hung around with the three guys. The boiler house where we had to go to do all of our practicum did not have a woman's washroom or a shower room for women. So one of my three friends would stand outside of the washroom for me and it was fine. The instructors were fine, except for the welding instructor who seemed to need to get a little too close to me when showing me how to do welding. But the head instructor and the others were fine and I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot and I was, we had to take physics and chemistry and math along with all the practical stuff. Mm. And, and then I did get a job. I got employed by the provincial government at Riverview Hospital, which was open in those days in their power plant. And I stayed there for a while. Riverview Hospital, that's the mental health hospital, no? Yes. Right. Yeah. And they have a huge, it's a big, big complex. And they had quite a large powerhouse in there. So I worked there. And then we had, at this point, there was a major recession happened. And I was only auxiliary. And people were getting laid off all over the place. And so my auxiliary didn't turn into full time. So I, I left. We moved to Vancouver Island, my mm. husband and I. And I worked for a plumbing company for a while. But right then was one of the major events in my life. And that is my mother was killed in a car accident. And oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, one month after my grandmother had died. So the two most important people in my life died within a month of each other. My grandmother was very old. And I was sitting holding her hand when she died. And well, that was very sad. My mother being killed in a car accident was traumatic. No kidding. I mean, it came out of nowhere, it sounds like. Yeah, and we worked in the same office and she was on her way to work. And it was just very upsetting. My mom had had all these dreams that she was going to build a house for herself in Cedar. And all of a sudden, it's just all gone. And I realized that if I really dreamed of going back to university, I should do it. So how old were you at that point? That would have been, yeah, I was 30, almost 31. Yeah, I was 30 at the time. Okay, so you, you went to university quite late then. Yeah, I started that fall. I got credit for some of the courses I'd done at Simon Fraser. And I went to what was now Spina College then. It's now Vancouver Island University, but it's now right. College. And did two years there before transferring back to Simon Fraser. During that time, did art play any role in your life at that point or not really? It did. I had, when we were in Calgary, I had bought a weaving loom and I had taken some courses on weaving, spinning and dyeing, natural dyeing and so on. And the loom had come with me and I spent a lot of time weaving. I was still also sketching and drawing. But at um, that point, you, you had given up on that being a career? I had, yes. I just didn't see a way to to make it into a career. But I hadn't given up on doing it. I had just given up on it being a career. Do you think it helped you work through your mother's passing? Hmm. I don't think it had that much to do with it because I, I think more what helped me was deciding to go back to university and realizing that that's what my mother would have wanted me to do. Hmm. That she always expected both her daughters would go to university and both of us started and quit. And so going back was something that she would have been very proud of me for doing. It was a way of honoring her. Yes. And so I was in physics at that. I, well, actually, when I started at Malaspina, I was started in, I'm going to take engineering. 
that lasted a couple of months when I decided I was more interested in why than how and switched from engineering to physics. And when I transferred to SFU, I was still in physics and theoretical physics. But in third year, there were so many interesting math courses and I didn't have enough electives to take them. And I was much more interested in them than the rest of the physics courses. So I went to the advisor in the math department and said, what can I do with a mathematics degree? Well, they weren't very helpful as to what I could do, but I switched anyway. (laughs) You loved it enough to take the risk. And and so I... What was it about? I mean, you said that engineering is more about how, like how to build things, how to put things together. And mathematics, I imagine, is similar to physics, where it's looking more at the why or like what... um, Yeah, I mean, what is the difference? Well, it's mathematics is more abstract. It's more of the theory where physics is looking at the real world. Mathematics is looking at a world that is completely abstract. You can apply it to the real world, but mathematics itself is completely abstract. It was actually in the physics class that got me really involved in the math, and it was at Malaspina College, and we were doing gyroscopic motion. We had been given these homework questions, and I went home, and I had all the equations, and I had all the theory, and I worked out this problem, and it said that the bicycle wheel was going to stay upright. In my mind, this was impossible. The bicycle wheel had to fall down. My intuition said it would fall down. So I knew I had the wrong answer. So I did it over again and I got the same answer. And I did it a third time. By this time, it was too late to keep doing it. And I had to go to school the next morning and hand problem with the wrong answer on it. And I was a bit of a perfectionist and I was not happy with handing in something that had the wrong answer. Well, the instructor came into the class with a bicycle reel, demonstrated, and it did exactly what the mathematical equations had said it would do, not what my intuition had said it would do. Interesting. And that had a big influence on me because it said this mathematics is so powerful, it can solve problems. Yeah. What did you take from that based on, I guess, your understanding of your intuition and its role? Intuition is important, but you have to be able to follow up your intuition with a justification for it. In mathematics, what we call a proof. Um, You have to be able to justify it because your intuition is based on your life experience and it can be wrong. Yeah, I mean, that's how I think of it is like intuition is something, it's a habit of thought. It's a way of thinking that's built over time and it can be based on accurate data, but it can also be based on, you know, faulty (laughs) data as well. Exactly. So I applied in the last year to go to graduate school, to go into a master's program and applied for an NSEARCH scholarship. And I got accepted to the graduate school and I got the NSEARCH scholarship, which was very nice. And so well, I, nice. I mean, it must have blown your, your mind at the time. I mean, here you are, you've come from the small town rural life. Now you're at the really at the pinnacle of academia. But I never felt at home at the university. I did not feel like I knew what I was doing. I didn't feel comfortable there and lacked the confidence to go ahead and ask the questions I should have been asking about the system, not about the mathematics, but about the system. But I continued anyway and finished my master's and was going to look for a job, but there wasn't any around. So I um, applied for a PhD and got accepted into that. That was in mathematics also? That was in mathematics as well. And then my marriage broke up just about the time I had to write my PhD comprehensives. Wow. So (laughs) your PhD sounds like it was not easy. (laughs) 
I was a very hardworking student and I did not have time left for anything else, which was not a good thing. It's not something I would recommend, but it was what I did. And then um, I was living in New Westminster and Douglas College had an opening for a math instructor. They only wanted a master's degree. And so I applied and shock of all shots, they actually hired me. Did you like teaching? Immediately. I, I knew this is what I wanted to be doing right from the moment I walked in. I was nervous about it, but it was what I wanted to be doing. It's the same thing that kept me intrigued with teaching all the way through my career. And that is, I have this very abstract subject matter, and I have to find a way to get them to understand it. And it was the challenge of trying to find the way to teach it how to make people understand. That's what intrigued me, interaction with the students. I had one thing where I'm getting to, I'm teaching calculus and I'm doing the proof on the board of the fundamental theorem of calculus, which from this title, you can tell is very, fairly important. And I get to the crucial step in, in the proof of it. And this one student sitting in looks up at me and says, oh, wow, I see. And I hadn't done the step. She had seen it just before I had done that last step. And that is really, really satisfying to have people suddenly see something like that. And so I, I love teaching. You can sort of open other people's eyes to a, a whole new world or a whole new way of seeing that they weren't able to access before. That's exactly it. Yeah. Mm. And so I continued on when they offered me an extension. I took that and then there was a full-time permanent position at uh, Kwantlen. And I applied for that and got hired into that position. You did the teaching for quite a while. How, how many years were you a professor of mathematics? 25. Wow, that's a lifetime. <laughs> I had not planned on retiring when I did, but I came over here to Nanaimo to Vancouver Island University for a conference. And I was thinking, oh, I'll retire. I was 65 at the time. No, I was actually 64 just before when I came over. And I thought, well, I'll retire in a few years. I want to look and see what's around in, in Nanaimo. And I got a real estate agent to show me around. And well, I saw this house and I said, no, it's too big. I don't want that house. And she insisted I would like it. And she was right. And I fell in love with it. Was it about that house in particular that you were like, this is where I need to be? It's a registered heritage home and it's old and I like old houses. I could see it as the possibility of renting to students again. And I really enjoyed doing that. But I just liked the feel of the house. It's big. It's spacious. It has a a half round tower in it, which is the other side of the room with the bookcase. And it has a living room, a formal dining room, a kitchen with an eating area. I've never had a place so big. It's within walking distance of downtown and walking distance of the university. Beautiful trees. The garden was a bit of a mess. The yard was a bit of a mess. And the house still needed work done on it. But the people I had bought it from had done a fair bit of work. Mm -hmm. on it already. If I remember correctly, you are a bit of an avid gardener too. Oh, yes. And I built a carriage house. Well, I didn't personally build the carriage house. I had mm -hmm. a carriage house built behind the main house and that's rented out. The house is an ongoing project and I think I need ongoing projects. I've always had that. As you know, in the house in Vancouver, I was always fixing or doing something on it. Well, yeah. And I, I feel like it's almost a creative outlet for you. It's something to work on, tinker with, develop. Yes. 
then when I moved here, because I retired, I had a lot more time. And that's when I really got back into doing my artwork. Do you see a connection between your artwork and your love of mathematics? Oh, yes, for sure. What, uh, what is that connection? Artwork is about patterns, design, balance, symmetry, or lack of it sometimes. And that's, well, an awful lot of what mathematics is about. You look for patterns. The patterns in mathematics may be abstract patterns that you're not going to be able to see, but you're still looking for and working with. Also, I discovered fractals through mathematics and started creating fractal designs. Can you just explain briefly what a fractal is? A fractal is a computer-generated design. It starts out often with a very simple equation. And if you think of a screen and all the pixels on the screen, you're going to take each pixel and you're going to use this equation to translate it from one place to another place. And then you're going to translate it from that place to another place and then to another place. You're going to do that with all of the pixels on the screen using this particular equation. And then you're going to look at where the pieces ended up as compared to where they started. And it ends up creating absolutely beautiful patterns that you would not necessarily predict what was going to happen. Hmm. You do hundreds of thousands of calculations. Well, not you personally. The computer does it for you. <laughs> the computer does it. You do not do it. This is why fractals did not exist, you know, uh, 60 years or more ago, because you could do similar ideas of recursive functions and get designs from them, but not the type of things that happen with fractals. So in terms of your art, do you have particular subject matter that you focus on? Do you find that there's certain subjects that resonate with you more than others? Yes, but it, it goes in a series. I'll do a whole series of one thing and then I'll move on to something else. So I started out when I moved here, doing a lot of things based on microscopic photographs of cell structures and not copying them, but using them for the inspiration for the paintings. And then I moved from there on to doing portraits. I've done quite a number of portraits. I like doing portraits. Somebody asked me once if I would do them on commission. And my answer is no. It has to be something that intrigues me that I want to do. And if I were to do it on commission, I would feel like I was trying to satisfy somebody else's wishes. Mm. And then I think I would not enjoy the process. Gotcha. Yeah. But I've enjoyed doing portraits. For a while, I was doing a lot of black and white, just ink. Yeah, you did one of me, actually. I still have it on my wall. Do you? Oh, yes. I have one of you. That's true. And I, But I've done a lot of abstract ones in, in the pen and ink. If you look behind me, there's one on the wall above the drawing table. Right. That's is some a rock wall, and all of the shading is actually done by tiny little circles, some of them small and some of them bigger. How long does that take you to do that? Well, that yeah, a long, long time. <laughs> yeah, because it's pretty tiny circles. Pretty tiny. They're they're like a millimeter or less in size, and that's a fairly large one. Well, when you say a long time, like how long are we talking exactly? <laughs> to do one of those a month. I think what always gets in the way of any creative endeavors I've tried to do is that I just lose steam, <laughs> right? It's hard to maintain that level of focus and attention and persistence of doing that. What keeps you going in that process? Um, I don't find it that hard. I sit down at the drawing table, either listen to the radio or I put music on or nothing at all. Every mark I put on the paper stays there. Like there's no correcting it. 
I'm not using oil or acrylic. So it requires continual concentration and continual problem solving. Am I going to put this mark here or am I going to put it there? How am I going to do it? And I just get into a zone of doing that and it's very relaxing. <laughs> that doesn't sound relaxing at all. It sounds like an extreme sport. <laughs> very relaxing. <laughs> and so during the beginning of COVID, my creativity dried up. I just I was at home, but I just could not do anything. I think I was just too stressed. After a while, as things got a little better, and I got more used to the situation, I got back and I started doing a, a series of mountains. And for some reason, have discovered I like lizards and I did a, a lizard's eye and a crocodile's head and a few things like that, mostly in black and white and gray. Do you have a sense of what it is about lizards that is appealing? It's the texture of their of the scale, scaly skin. I really like the texture. And the fact that with the lizards, it's not all the same size scales. You have big scales and small scales, and they create really interesting patterns. And their eyes are interesting, too. The last one I've done was not lizards. I've been doing a couple of lichen. Well, again, inspired by lichen because uh, the colors I'm using, I don't think the lichen actually grows in those colors. <laughs> right. So you take something real and then you riff off of that. Exactly. Yeah. If people wanted to see your art and maybe buy something of yours, where could they find that? They could go to lynnhamill.ca, my website. And can you spell your name? Because it's not it's not obvious how to spell that. <laughs> L-I-N-H-A-M-M-I-L-L dot C-A. Beautiful. And okay, then the final question I had for you, if you had to pick one thing in your life that you're most proud of, what would you say that is? I think what I am most proud of is helping refugees. When I was in my 20s, there was a lot of people running away from the U.S. because of the war in Vietnam and coming to Canada. And at that time, my first husband was a deserter from the American army. And I thought at that time it would be really good to be in a position to provide safe home for people who were fleeing this type of problem. And many, many years later, I'm providing a safe home for people who are fleeing very great oppression. Most of the people I, I've been working with are Syrians or Eritreans. And the Syrians are escaping civil war and the Eritreans are escaping a police state. And the fact that I can be helping these people and that they let me become part of their lives. Hmm. Beautiful. And I, I now have a number of grandchildren, and I never bothered to have children, so it's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, a family is, you know, what you make it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's, I think, what I'm most proud of. I mean, I like doing my artwork. I love teaching, and I got teaching awards, and I did all kinds of things there. But I think the involvement with, with people and helping people. Well, thank you for doing this. This was fun. Softly Spoken is a Tilted Windmills production. It was hosted and produced by Stefan de Villiers. If you enjoyed listening to this episode and you'd like to help support us, please share it with others, post it on social media, or leave us a rating or review. 
Thanks again, and see you next time.